For 40 days, our Lord lingered. For 40 days, he kind of stood in the doorway. Remember when you would do that as a kid? And your mom or your dad, or in my memory, it was my grandma, who would say, look, David, in or out, you've got to choose, in or out. But Jesus lingered. For 40 days, he appeared to his disciples, and the book of Acts describes it quite well. It says, for 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples and took salt with them. He ate with them for 40 days, lingering between his throne at the Father's right hand and his place with the disciples. For 40 days, Jesus stood in the doorway. And his departure, his departure brought joy. There is a paradox in our reading this morning, isn't there? Jesus speaks of his going away, and he says, Sorrow will fill your hearts when I go away, but but it is to your advantage that I go. Now, think of the kind of people who you usually associate with their departure bringing you joy. Jesus isn't one of those people, is he? If he is, then you need to change some things. Usually when we think about the kind of people whose departure brings us joy, they're the kind of people we can't stand. They're the family members who just irritate us. They're the friends, shall we say, who we just can't wait to count down the time until it's time to go. You've overstayed your welcome. Time to be moving on. But Jesus doesn't count as one of those, does he? And yet he says, and yet he says, my departure will bring you joy. Here is the wonderful paradox that Christ's going away is not his leaving us behind, but it is his going up. And when he goes up, he does so for better things have come. He goes up, he says, so that he might send you his spirit. And I want you to think this morning of the spirit of God like water. That's the way the Old Testament reading spoke of the spirit. We heard Isaiah's prophecy. He said this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now think about the significance of water. We take it for granted, don't we? In my house, I have, let's see, how many faucets do I have? I have two spigots outside, so if I'm ever thirsty out there, I can just drink out of the spigot. I've got, uh, let's see, there's the kitchen faucet, there's two bathrooms, there's one downstairs, then there's the faucets in the tub and the shower, so I've got like six faucets. I'm going to guess that most of you have at least a number similar. Oh, and then there's also the, you know, the little, the thing on the fridge. Point is, if I'm ever thirsty, water is only a few steps away, and chances are, chances are that it's the same for you. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to dwell on, where am I going to get my next drink of water? It's all around us. And where there is water, there is life. That's how it was in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember? When God made the Garden of Eden, that garden of delights and pleasure, he surrounded the garden with four rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Euphrates, and the Tigris. And all through the Garden of Eden, water bubbled up and flowed around. In fact, it says in Genesis 2 that it didn't even have to rain because the water came up out of the ground. Where there is water, there is life. But we're not in Eden anymore, are we? Man was booted out, and the angel stood at the entrance so that man could never get back to that garden of delights. He could never sit in that garden. He could never dwell there with all the waters flowing around him. And so the story of Scripture records again and again how the people of God had to search out water. 
Now, sometimes these details seem kind of insignificant to us. Abram dug a well. Isaac dug a well. Jacob dug a well. They were digging well after well after well. Because where there is water, there is life. And where there is no water, there is no life. Where there is water, there is life. With joy, Isaiah prophesied of a day when the well, not just of this world, when a well would be opened that wouldn't just bring water that could flower your garden or water that could quench a thirsty tongue, but Isaiah spoke of a time when there would be a well of salvation. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the coming of the Messiah. For wherever Jesus is, water is not far. You know well that our Lord Jesus was often on the waters. You know that he was often on the seashore with his disciples. But even when he wasn't near physical water, he himself was the source. Do you see? He was the source of a different kind of well. Let me remind you of one of these stories of Jesus with water. For wherever Jesus is, water is not far away. And as I've told you this morning, wherever there is water, there is life. Remember Jesus and the woman of Samaria? There was this Samaritan woman, and Jesus encountered her at a well. It was Jacob's well, one of those wells that he had dug back long, long ago in the olden days of Israel. And she was sitting at that well, and so was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, I'm thirsty. Give me something to drink. And of course, this surprised the woman because, well, she was a Samaritan. And, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans weren't exactly friends. They didn't have any dealings together. So she said to him, what is this? You being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And then, as Jesus so often does, he kind of shifts gears. Woman, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink of water, you would ask him, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. You know the difference between living water and just plain old water? Living water moves. Plain water stays still. And if you leave plain water alone long enough, you know what happens to plain water? Algae starts to form. Mold begins to take over. It gets slimy. In fact, if we leave this water in this uh, little bowl here in the baptismal font for even a week, it starts to get a little bit gross. It's not the kind of water you would want to drink. But living water, living water is always fresh. Living water is always bubbling up. Living water is always churning, always moving, always teeming, always bringing forth life. Because where there is water, there is life. And Jesus speaks of a, of a water that never gets algae. Jesus speaks of a water that never goes to rest because what he is telling that woman there at the well is that I am the source of the Spirit of God. Wherever Jesus goes, water is not far. And even when he was at the cross, even when he was thirsty at the cross and there was no water around him, what did our Lord do? He opened up his side and out of his side gushed new water. Out of the side of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he had finished his work, when he had taken our sins to the cross, when he had satisfied the just wrath of the Father over your sins, Jesus opened a new kind of well, the well of living water. And from that well, from that well of salvation, now the whole world is full of the Spirit of God. 
Water flowed out of Jesus' side from the cross, and that water, like the Pishon, like the Gihon, like the Tigris, like the Euphrates, brings life. But it's not the same kind of water that you can get from a faucet, is it? The water that flowed out of Jesus' side is not the kind of water that you could put a cup, oh, you could have put a cup there long ago, but what we are meant to understand What we are meant to see in the cross of Jesus Christ is the well, not of earthly physical water, but the well of the Spirit. And that well of the Spirit is open for you. Are you thirsty? Do you want something to drink? Then ask Jesus, and you will receive from him not old, stale, plastic, particleized water, but you will receive from him the life-giving Spirit of God. That's what he promised his disciples as he lingered for 40 days. And he had promised it even before those 40 days of his resurrection. And that is what they looked forward to. They didn't look forward to, you know, the time when Jesus would be gone and life would be so hard and they would have no hope and they would have no joy and they would have no song in their mouth. No, they looked forward to the day when their Lord, when their master, when their friend and their savior would go up. For when he goes up, He pours out his spirit below. But the well of salvation that is open for you, the well of salvation that is open for you is a different kind of water. It's not the kind of water that you can drink from and remain the same. I don't know if you like the taste of water. Sometimes my kids tell me that water tastes really good and chances are you've said something like that before. But water doesn't taste like anything at all, does it? Water tastes good because it is refreshing. Water tastes good because it kind of restores an equilibrium to us. But the water that is the Holy Spirit doesn't just keep everything even keel. It is a churning, teeming, ever-moving, always-changing kind of water. And if you drink from the water of God's Spirit, well, don't be surprised if you change. Isn't that how Jesus described the work of his Holy Spirit? When he spoke about what the Spirit would do when it came into the world, he didn't say, you know, everything is going to just remain kind of calm and placid. He said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be like a water of conviction. The Holy Spirit comes to make you a convict. (laughs) How do, you, how do you like that? How many of you want to be convicts? Oh, I went to church this morning and I found out that the Holy Spirit wants to make me a convict. But it's so true and it's so needed. Have you ever talked to somebody who has no convictions? Have you ever talked to someone who just nods along with whatever you say, who just goes along with everything? That's not the kind of people that God's Spirit makes. That's not the kind of first fruits of his creation that our Lord wants to create. If you drink from the spirit of God's water, you will be changed. You will be convicted. And that is for your good. Because the world does not need gray, lifeless disciples of Jesus Christ. The world needs vivid, living men and women. Left to ourselves, we would become gray and lifeless. Isn't that the story of the history of the world? Man was made in God's image, in his likeness there in the garden. And when he fell into sin, he fell into lifelessness. He fell into death. Everything became gray and boring and bland and tasteless. 
But when God sends his spirit into your heart, when God sends his spirit to change you, he brings life. He brings change. For where the spirit is, there is life. There is conviction. Sometimes we get this confused with feelings, right? So whenever we have a good feeling, we might associate that with, oh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we have a bad feeling, well, that can't be from the Holy Spirit. And so people sometimes come to church, and if the sermon is not exactly riveting, and if the hymns don't bring a a smile to their face, they leave and they go home and they say, well, the Spirit wasn't really moving today. But the Spirit of God is not simply concerned with your feelings. He does not operate only in the realm of emotion. Oh, he will touch your feelings. He will touch your emotions. He will change your affections. But he operates mainly on your convictions. Isn't that what Jesus says? And what he convicts you of first and foremost is of your own sins. Jesus says when the Spirit comes, he will convict you of sin. He won't come to you and say, you're such a good person. You should have more self-esteem. You should just believe in yourself. You can do it if you try. No, when the Spirit comes, he will show you the true state of things. He will show you. He will show you your sins. Here is God's law, God's holy and just law, and the Spirit will use that law like a mirror to show you where you have fallen short, to show you where you have not measured up. But that working of conviction of your sins is not where the Spirit stops, for the water continues to churn, and the Spirit means not just to show you sin, but he means, Jesus says, to convict you also of righteousness. That though you are a sinner, there is hope for you, because there is a righteousness that doesn't come from inside of you. There is a righteousness that exists outside of you. There is a righteousness in your Lord Jesus Christ, and he, his righteousness, will be yours That's the second thing the Spirit convicts us of. And the third thing that Jesus says that this water of the Spirit will bring into the world is the conviction of judgment. Now, oftentimes when we hear of judgment, we get a little bit nervous, right? Because we know that if we got what we deserved, that if we got truly what we deserved, it wouldn't be good. But the judgment that Jesus speaks of, the judgment that the Spirit prophesies about. The judgment that the Spirit proclaims is not your judgment. It is a judgment on the ruler of this world, which is what Jesus uses as a term for the devil. See, here is the conviction that the Spirit wants you to have, that though you are a sinner, Christ died for you, and that his righteousness avails for you. And though you look around the world and you see death having the upper hand, the judgment has been declared. That in the resurrection of Jesus, there is hope. In the resurrection of Jesus, there is joy. In the resurrection of Jesus, there is a victory that is proclaimed to all who believe in him. This is the conviction that the Spirit brings into the world. And he wants you to be a convict of it this morning. Of your own sinfulness, yes. Of Jesus' righteousness, definitely. And of the victory. Of the victory that Christ has won over sin, death, and all the powers of hell. And when that conviction comes to you, when you become a convict of the Holy Spirit, see, there is this great change and something kind of odd starts to happen. You start to sing. With joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that he is exalted. 
Wherever the Holy Spirit goes, wherever the Spirit is sent into the world, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and his sacraments are celebrated, a new song bubbles up out of the ground. For not only is he the well of salvation, but he is also the well of a new song, the song of faith. And you have begun to take your part in that song, haven't you? Some of you sing quite loudly. I'm not going to say well. Some of you sing quite well. I'm not always sure you sing loudly. Some of you have it both ways. You sing well and loudly. Some of you are still learning to sing. Some of you have mastered it. But all of it, all of it is brought about by the Holy Spirit. For where there is water, there is life. And where there is the Spirit of God, there is life. And where that Spirit is, there is conviction. And if you are convicted of these things, of your sin, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and of the victory that he holds out, well then, what else is there to do but to sing? Christians have something worth singing about. You do. You have something far greater than singing about a birthday party or about take me out to the ball game or even about a nation and its national anthem. You have salvation to sing about. So belt it out, dear friends, whether you can sing well or whether, you know, you're still figuring it all out. For the Spirit of God is at work through these things to tune you, to tune you, to sing the new song. And here's the wonderful thing. Where that song bubbles up and gushes out, People are drawn in. Life starts to flow. There is vividness. There is life. There is color. There is conviction. This is the work of the Spirit. Where there is water, there is life. And where there is Jesus, there is his Spirit. And where his Spirit goes, there is faith. And there is a new song. Oh, sing to the Lord, for he has done marvelously. Let this be made known in all the earth. To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen. As we gather our offerings,